song 99 Red Balloons, which reached number one in Britain, Australia and Canada in 1984, is about nuclear war. The song's narrator buys some balloons and sets them free at the break of dawn till one by one they were gone. But back at base, bugs in the software flash the message, something's out there. Floating in the summer sky, 99 red balloons go by. In the song, the jumpy early warning system of an enemy country detects the strange objects floating in the sky and think it's an incoming missile attack. The song says, panic bells, it's red alert, there's something here from somewhere else. The war machine springs to life, opens up one eager eye, focusing on the sky as 99 red balloons go by. The song ends with the narrator uh, standing in this dust that was a city. Nuclear war has been triggered by something as innocent as 99 red balloons loose in the sky. It's not as far-fetched as it sounds. During the Cold War, the East and West's early warning systems did indeed react to errors interpreting them as potential incoming missiles. The wrong tape inserted in the computer, a flock of geese, uh, sunlight reflecting off clouds. Well, breathe a sigh of relief, listeners, because the Cold War is over, and so surely such things don't happen anymore. Who knows what's going to happen next year, uh, next week, um, in the next half hour, but we do know that after the end of the Cold War... When the nuclear threat had receded and we were um, great buddies again, we almost leapt into nuclear war. Not because of balloons or geese or clouds, but because of an innocent Norwegian rocket sent up into the sky with measuring equipment to study the lovely northern lights. The Russians saw it and thought... Here it comes, the long-awaited nuclear attack, and they alerted their president. It was dawn, 25th of January, 1995, and some Norwegian scientists, working with the Americans, fired a rocket from the northwest coast of Norway so they could study the Aurora Borealis. It was what's known as a sounding rocket, meaning it was carrying scientific gear. It was there to study, not attack. It was the nerd of the rocket world, not there for a fight. The rocket would launch from the far northwest of Norway, from the Andoya base, and go up across the Barents Sea towards the Norwegian island of Svalbard. If you take a look at the map, you'll see that this neck of the woods takes you relatively close to Russia, and particularly to some sensitive areas of Russia. Looking at the map, you'll notice a big long strip of a Russian island called Novaya Zemlya. That is, of course, where the Soviets tested Tsar Bomba, the biggest nuclear bomb ever detonated, 
And I have two episodes about that in the podcast archive. So yes, perhaps not wise Norway to go chucking rockets around up there, relatively close to the scene of that particular nuclear horror, and also relatively close to the Russian border itself. But the Norwegians weren't silly. They carefully and dutifully informed the Russians and a bunch of other countries that we'll be launching this rocket and it will go on this particular trajectory, but it's just for scientific research, so if you see it, please don't worry. Excellent. Very sensible of the Norwegians. Except the Russian Ministry of Defence didn't pass the message on to their radar operators. You know, the blokes on the ground who might actually see this thing come streaking over the horizon and think, my God, what the hell is that? The Soviet Union, of course, had an early warning system and had radar scanning the skies for any incoming missiles or bombers. Again, scoot back in the archive to see my episode on the Russian woodpecker, which was the nickname of a gigantic radar array for that purpose beside Chernobyl, which would watch the horizon for an incoming nuclear attack. I have stood directly beneath the thing. It's like a a monstrous, intricate, endless climbing frame. Similar radar arrays across the USSR were dismantled at the end of the Cold War, but this one, as it stands in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, has been left. It uh, creaks and sighs in the cold Ukrainian wind and drips freezing, steely water down your neck. But despite having what the BBC say was the largest air defence system in the world at that time, in 1987, a West German teenager, Matthias Rust, was able to fly his tiny little Cessna plane through Soviet airspace and land it in Red Square, right at Gorbachev's doorstep. So then the system was not foolproof, and safety can never be guaranteed. And so, in 1995, when our Norwegian scientists were launching their NERD rocket, you might forgive the Russians for still being a bit edgy. If a teenage boy can fly right into the heart of our capital... We had best be on our guard. The Cold War is over, but the nuclear threat never goes away. So the Norwegians launched their sounding rocket, safe in the knowledge that they had alerted the Russians and all other relevant countries. They were right to do this because the rocket and its trajectory bore several unsettling resemblances to an actual nuclear missile. Firstly, its flight would take it partly into the air corridor, which would be used by a Minuteman missile if it had been launched at Russia from the silos at North Dakota. The Norwegian rocket would also reach roughly the same altitude, 900 miles, as a ballistic missile. And uh, making it even more threatening... The Norwegian rocket was a multi-stage rocket, meaning it would separate in flight, break up into different pieces. The fact that it uh, separated like this made it seem alarmingly like a MIRV. MIRV stands for Multiple 
independently targetable re-entry vehicle. And that is a particularly terrifying nuclear missile, as it launches as one missile, but contains numerous warheads. And once it's up there, it will separate, and each of its warheads will go off to its own individual target. So the innocent uh, Norwegian rocket is up there, looking and behaving very like a nuclear missile. And, as expected, the Russian early warning system spots it. It was the radar station at Murmansk who detected it. Murmansk is in the far north of Russia, close to the Finnish border and the Barents Sea. And they spotted these particular 99 red balloons go by. The Russian system was accurate enough in that it did see one incoming missile. It didn't see a flock of geese or sunlight and clouds and think it was a massive attack. No, they correctly saw one solitary missile. And they went on full alert. Full alert. It was taken all the way up to Boris Yeltsin, who was given the Chiget, which is the Russian equivalent of the American nuclear football. That is, the briefcase which lets him authorise nuclear attack from anywhere. Whether he's on a plane, on the beach, or on the toilet. As far as we know, this was the first, and so far only time, that Chiget has ever been brought to the Russian president. But just for one single incoming missile? That's not going to wipe out Russia. Surely... If the Americans were launching a first strike, they would send waves and waves of missiles. They would darken the sky with them. So why the panic over one? Well, they figured this might be the single high-altitude nuclear burst which will initiate the all-out attack. As happens in threads, a single nuke is detonated high in the atmosphere and that sends out an electromagnetic pulse which will disable your enemy's electronics and communications, smoothing the path for you then to go all in with the full horror. So the Russians thought, well, maybe that's what we're seeing here, the single high-altitude burst to knock out our systems. And that is why one single rocket was sufficient to prompt a full nuclear alarm in Russia. When the Murmansk radar operators spotted the rocket, they escalated the matter up the chain of command and it went up and up and up, ending with Yeltsin and the Chiget open on his desk. They only had 10 minutes from first spotting the rocket to decide how to react. Only 10 short minutes in which to identify this thing, work out its trajectory. Is it coming for us? Do we retaliate? 10 minutes. That is the length of time it would take for a submarine-launched nuclear missile launched from the Barents Sea to reach mainland Russia. So that was their window, 10 minutes to impact, 10 minutes to decide, 10 minutes in which to get their own missiles off the ground before they're destroyed by the incoming ones. This um, awful system where nuclear powers might only have minutes to decide the world's fate is of course a legacy of the Cold War, and it's called Launch on Warning. It is ludicrously dangerous. 
There is an argument, yes, of course, for possessing nuclear weapons, but there is no justification anymore for having them poised on hair trigger alert, ready to fly in minutes. Launch on warning means a country can detect incoming missiles, or a bunch of geese, which it thinks are incoming missiles, and it can launch its own nukes in retaliation, not having been attacked, but merely in the expectation that they are going to be attacked, merely on the warning of an incoming attack. But of course, uh, the warning can be wrong. Sure, launch on warning made some sense back in the early Cold War, when both sides just had nuclear bombers. And if you don't get those things off the ground fast, they're going to be pulverised on the runway. It would have been a case of use it or lose it. But missiles are not as vulnerable as big lumbering bombers on an airbase. They are buried in scattered silos, or even better, they are silent and almost undetectable beneath the ocean on submarines. So there's no need to have nukes poised and raring to go, holding them back like a mad Rottweiler or a chain. You can afford now to wait and be sure that you are indeed under attack before choosing to press the button and retaliate. Because you can be confident in knowing that even if the enemy gets a first strike in, you will still have plenty of nukes under the ground or out at sea with which to retaliate. And, crucially, your enemy will know that, and so they'll be deterred from striking you in the first place. So the theory goes. But no, we still have nuclear missiles ready to launch on warning. It's an outdated practice and an unnecessary danger. Well, the Norwegian rocket was up there, the Russians had spotted it, and they were ready to retaliate. Yeltsin was alerted and the Chiget was opened. But thankfully, they hesitated and eventually saw the Norwegian rocket veer away from Russian airspace and harmlessly drop into the sea 24 minutes after it had launched. But yet again, a false alarm had brought us close to nuclear war. And luck had allowed us to scrape through. We are very reliant on luck when it comes to our nuclear weapons and to avoiding nuclear war, but we can give luck a helping hand by ditching launch on warning and by keeping communication channels open and vigorous and reliable. Another reason, of course, why the war in Ukraine is so dangerous, because we have the sense that Putin is capable of anything, however shocking and unpredictable, but also that the Russians can't be trusted at the moment. We just have to hope then that there are still sensible, rational, calm diplomats speaking to one another behind the scenes. There's a new uh, bonus podcast episode waiting on my Patreon page. It's called Chernobyl Clouds, and it's about the massive 10-mile-wide radioactive rain cloud which was drifting from Chernobyl after the explosion towards Moscow. And the episode looks at how the Soviets used cloud seeding technology to force this poison cloud to rain, meaning it would unleash all its poison over Belarus sparing Moscow. 
I recorded this in response to lots of speculation on social media that the invading Russians were going to bomb the Chernobyl plant. I don't think they will because Russia could be badly affected by any resulting radiation spike. Here's a short clip from the episode. Just 48 hours after the disaster, a massive plume of radiation was detected and it was heading on the wind in a northeasterly direction and spreading out and out until it was 10 miles wide. Again, look at the map. To the south of Chernobyl is the mass of Ukraine. To the north is Belarus. But uh, to the northeast was uh, precious Russia. And that is where the monstrous cloud was headed. That cloud had to be stopped. It could not be allowed to pass over Russia and reach Moscow. So that episode and uh, six others are available as a benefit to patrons of the podcast. Uh, Just £3 a month gets you access to all these bonus episodes. I'll be recording more as we go on. And there are other rewards too. So please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank my newest patrons. Quite a lot of you in the past week and I'm very grateful. Uh, Hello and thank you to Princess Toadstool, Vicky Radford, Simone Anthony, Martin Lightburn, Ross Boswell, Andrea Summer, Brian Hagen, and a special thank you to Dave, aka Shota's Disco Shoes, and Mil Besso for increasing their monthly donation. So thank you to all my patrons for supporting my work and, yes, keeping this podcast gloriously free from ads. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com, and I'll be back next week with another episode.